forth your light and truth, O God. May they guide us and may they lead us to the place of your holy dwelling. Amen. Well, friends, have you ever seen the movie National Treasure? Okay, good. A lot of people have. It's, it's, a, it's a favorite in our household, especially for family movie nights. If you haven't seen it, the main character is played by Nicolas Cage, and he plays this guy who spends his entire life searching for this fabled lost treasure of the Knights Templar. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm going to give away the ending. He finds the treasure. He finds the treasure. Sorry to, to spoil the ending there. But the scene where he finds the treasure is actually the great scene. After all searching through all these clues and everything, he, he goes into this chamber, uh, he and his companions, and they know that they're in the right place because they can see a, a few pieces of treasure around. But what happens is he has this torch and he goes to this place in the center of the room and he lights a fire and this fire has this domino effect and really quickly it goes throughout the whole room and it lights hundreds and hundreds of torches and it, and it reveals this massive cavern with this massive uh, treasure in it with gold upon gold upon gold and gems and, and, and the lights just shining everywhere. It's this beautiful unveiling of this treasure that has been hidden in darkness for ages and ages past. Well, this morning is Epiphany Sunday and we are going to celebrate another unveiling, if you will. This morning, we are going to celebrate the epiphany of Jesus, who is the King of the Jews, who is God incarnate, and who is the light of the nations. Now, the word epiphany, it means a manifestation or a revealing of something that has been previously hidden but has now been made known to us. On our liturgical calendar, Epiphany is part of what we call the cycle of light, in which as we go throughout Epiphany, more and more light is shed upon Jesus' identity, and it reveals more and more what it means that he is God incarnate and the Savior of the world. And so, friends, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 1 through 12. Um, while you're turning there, let, let me say a couple things uh, let me say one thing about this particular epiphany. Whenever we experience an epiphany moment, a moment of, say, great insight or something like that, I believe that there are actually two different responses that we can have to this type of revelation. Those two responses are either embrace or opposition. Because what does an epiphany do? An epiphany lets us see something that we couldn't see before. And it challenges the way that we view ourselves and it challenges the way that we view the world. Now we can embrace this new revelation joyfully or we can oppose it with all of our might. Light is not always a welcome visitor. I say that because as we look at our text this morning, we're gonna see both of these reactions. We're gonna see what it looks like when people oppose the epiphany of Christ. And we're going to see what it looks like when people fully embrace this epiphany about who Christ is. So Matthew chapter 2. This is the story of the visit of the Magi. We don't really know a ton about them. We know a little bit, but not a lot. Um, we know that they came from somewhere east of Israel, although we don't know the exact location. One ancient historian tells us that Magi were normally a tribe of pagan priests 
probably of like a Zoroastrian religion or some type of Persian religion. But we, we know that they played very prominent roles in both the Persian and the Babylonian empires. They were astronomers, they were astrologers, uh, they practiced magic and divination. But we also know that they had at least a limited, a very limited knowledge of Hebrew prophecy. We know they had a little bit of, of knowledge of, of Hebrew scripture and Hebrew prophecy. In the Old Testament, we actually find them in two places. We find them in the book of Esther. They're the ones who are acting as the judges for the king. We also find them in the book of Daniel. If you remember the story of Daniel, King Darius, he has these dreams. And so he calls upon his wise men, his, his magi, to come and, and interpret these dreams for him. Well, the magi can't interpret the dreams. They don't know what, what they're about. And so Daniel is called upon. And Daniel comes and he rightly interprets the dreams. And then Daniel, because he's able to do that, he is appointed as the chief of the Magi. And so here's Daniel, a Hebrew, as being chief of the Magi, at least under King Darius. And so that's where we think they probably got some of their knowledge of Hebrew prophecy. But all of that aside, the point of these Magi for this particular passage is this. What we have is we have foreign men who are of high pagan and religious and political status. Well, they're the ones who show up in Jerusalem, and they're the ones who bring with them news of this major life and world-changing epiphany. And what do they do? They come to Jerusalem, and in verse 2, they say this, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, it is not a normal thing to go on a very long journey in order to pay homage to a foreign king. That doesn't normally happen. But here, here they are. They are these prominent pagan Gentiles in Jerusalem asking about the king of the Jews. You know, if you know the story of Christ, you know that there's another time when a very prominent pagan Gentile calls Jesus the king of the Jews. It's Pilate at the crucifixion. He literally inscribes king of the Jews onto the cross. That's significant. It's significant that it is the Gentiles who acknowledge Jesus as the king of the Jews. Because if you remember, Israel was chosen and Israel was elected in order to be the light to the nations. That was their purpose, a light to the Gentile nations, so that in them and through them all the nations that did not worship God would see the goodness of the Lord. And they would be drawn in so that they too could come and worship the God of Israel. The prophecy then was that once the throne of David was restored and David's heir, who would be the Messiah, reestablishes the kingdom, well, then this prophecy would come to fruition. 
In fact, this, the prophecy we saw, uh, we read this morning in Isaiah chapter 60, arise and shine for your light has come. And then it keeps going on in verse six, particularly of 60, where it says um, that we see all the nations bringing their gifts and bringing their offerings and laying them before the altar of God, devoting themselves in worship and praise to the God of Israel. So that's the whole point of why the Magi show up. That's the whole point. God in his providential leading brought these Magi before the Christ child in order to show us that in Jesus, the purpose of the election of Israel is fulfilled. That in Jesus, a light shines to all nations and to all people. That's the epiphany that we're celebrating this morning. That the light to the Gentiles has come. Israel's Messiah has come and through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That's the language of the Abrahamic covenant. All people of the world would be blessed. It is a glorious and life-changing epiphany. Listen to the way that, that, that Paul says this. Here's how he describes it in, in Ephesians, the, another passage we read a moment ago. Starting in verse three, of, starting in verse four of chapter three. The mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, has now been revealed to his holy apostles and to the prophets by the Holy Spirit. He says, this is the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Because Jesus is king of the Jews, you have salvation. The fact that the Gentiles call Jesus the king of the Jews, that means that God has done something for you that you could never do for yourself. He has brought you a light so that you don't have to remain in darkness. But as I said earlier, there are two responses to this type of epiphany, embrace or opposition. Not everyone embraces this truth. In fact, let's look and see how it's, it's actually received. In verse three, it says this, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Herod was troubled. You know, there's two times in this particular passage in which emotions are conveyed. This is the first time. And it says that Herod was troubled. Your translation may say something like distressed or alarmed or disturbed. There's one other time in all of Matthew's gospel that this particular word is used, and it's in chapter 14 when the disciples are out on a boat and a storm comes up and Jesus comes walking in the wa- on the water in the midst of the storm, and it says that the disciples were terrified. This is the feeling that Herod has at the epiphany that the king of the Jews has been born. It is, uh, it, it's a sense of anxiety and fear, and it strikes Herod right to the heart. Now think about it. A new king means what? A new king means a challenge to the old king's power. And kings don't have a history of giving up power very easily, do they? In fact, most Herods of the world will do all they can to ensure that nothing challenges their power. And Herod does the same thing. If we read on in the story, what happens? The Magi go home a different way. But Herod gets really upset. And what does he do? He sends out a decree and says, I want every child under the age of two, every male child under the age of two in Bethlehem, I want him killed. He sends out a decree and he has him slaughtered. It's called the slaughter of the innocents. And he does that as a way of trying to ensure 
that nothing challenges his power and that this new king doesn't have a chance to assume his throne. Not everybody embraces the epiphany of Christ. So Herod was troubled. You know who else was troubled? It says, all Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem. Now, it makes sense why Herod would be troubled. But why all Jerusalem? I mean, wouldn't it make sense that, they're long, that they would be excited about the news of the birth of their long-awaited king and the long-awaited Messiah? Scripture says that they're not very excited. Um, I think there's two reasons why all Jerusalem would be troubled. The first reason, I think, is just human nature. Change is a scary thing, even good change, right? Change always comes with a level of uncertainty. Even with the greatest epiphanies, we can still be hesitant to embrace change simply because things are out of our control, and we just don't like that. We'd rather feel like we have some sort of normalcy or stability, even if things are less than perfect. Have you ever felt that way? I have. Have you ever felt like you didn't want things to change even, even though you know things aren't great because at least you know how to navigate the current situation and at least you feel like you might have a little bit of control over some stuff? Change always comes with uncertainty. But I think that there's actually a second reason why all of Jerusalem is troubled. You see, at this point in time, even though most people didn't really like Herod, there were a number of Jewish leaders who had actually aligned themselves with Herod, particularly the Sadducees and the Herodians. And what does that mean? When a new king comes into town, usually what happens is he takes away power and control from all of the supporters of the, the, the previous regime. So one of the reasons why they would have been troubled would have been Herod's downfall would have met their own downfall because they had aligned themselves with Herod. Now, maybe they aligned themselves for political gain. Maybe it was for economic prosperity. Maybe it was just simply for out of survival. But nonetheless, the announcement of a new king meant that their future was uncertain. Think about this. In about roughly 30 years from this particular event, the next generation of all Jerusalem, they're going to stand before Pilate and they're going to stand before Jesus and they're going to look at Jesus and they're going to cry, crucify him, crucify him. And then Pilate is going to say, shall I crucify your king? And what's their response? We have no king but Caesar. We need to be very careful which Herods we align ourselves with, friends. Not everyone embraces the arrival of Jesus. That's the first reaction, opposition. They were terrified because of all the implications of it. However, there's a second time in this passage in which emotion is conveyed, and it's the exact opposite reaction. Later on in the story, the, the Magi will leave Herod's palace. They will begin to follow a star, that star will stop over the house where Jesus is. And in verse 10, it says this. When the Magi saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. 
Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I love that line. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's almost as if Matthew can't find the right words to drive home just how deeply they felt this joy. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They had been searching for a long time to find this child, but they found him. And when they found him, the search was complete. And what did they do? They, they fell down and they worshiped him. And in offering these expensive gifts, what they were doing is they were symbolically offering themselves to this king who was not originally theirs. But now, by embracing this new epiphany, the king of the Jews, they know that, that he has arrived and with him comes salvation to all people. I actually love this scene. And this scene reminds me of the lyrics of that great Christmas hymn that we sang a couple weeks ago, O Holy Night. The lyrics go like this. Long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appears and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. And so what? Fall on your knees which is exactly what they did. Because worship is the natural response of a soul that truly embraces the light of the living Christ. Let me say that again. Worship is the natural response of a soul that truly embraces the light of the living Christ. Like the song says, long lay the world in sin and error pining. Sin creates a darkness that causes us to lose our way and causes us to walk around aimlessly longing for something that we can't see and something that we can't really find. You know what else sin does? Sin puts this, this weight on our souls and it makes us feel shameful, makes us feel guilty, and it makes us feel unworthy. Now, the truth is, is that we are unworthy. The truth is, is that in sin, we are unworthy. That is, until we encounter Christ. Long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appears and the soul felt its worth as one theologian loves to say, it is the glory of God to love the unworthy sinner. It is the glory of God to love the unworthy sinner. We are unworthy until Christ makes us worthy. And it is the light of Christ that makes us to be something that we weren't before. And now we can rejoice because we have a hope that we didn't have before. A thrill of hope. The, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. What was once hidden in darkness is now been revealed and we can see things differently. We can see the world differently. We can see ourselves differently. When we embrace Christ as our savior, that light causes us to see the beauty of God's love for us. It's a beauty that we couldn't really see before. And it's a, a love that makes us new and makes all things new as well. And friends, when we see things in this new light, within the light of Christ, well, then we can walk in this new light. We can walk in this new light, not aimlessly, not weighed down, but in the direction of God and in freedom. I love the words of Psalm 43. Listen to the, to the words of this psalmist as he prays this prayer. He says, Oh God, send forth your light and your truth, so that they may guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain and to your dwelling places. And then I will approach the altar of God, even to God in whom my joy finds its source. And then I will praise you, God my God. 
And then looking into himself, he says, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, because I will praise him once again since his presence saves me, for he is my God. It is the light of Christ that when we embrace, makes us new and gives us direction. Well, in verse 12 of chapter 2 in Matthew, the story ends. What happens is that the Magi are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod because he has these evil plans. And so what does it say? It says, so, he, so they departed to their own country by another way. They departed to their own country by another way. Now, I want to encourage you as you read your scripture not to too quickly pass over details that, seem, that might seem insignificant. I'm convinced after reading a lot of the early church fathers on this particular point that that phrase, by another way, is not just a description about them literally walking a different road home, which they obviously did. But I think that there's a deeper meaning there. I think that there's a deeper truth that these magi, they had encountered and embraced the living Christ. And because they did that, they were forever changed. And therefore, they were traveling in a new way. They were traveling in a new way. And I think that's the call for us today, this epiphany, to continue to embrace more deeply the light of Christ, to walk in the light that shines on our path and illuminates a whole new way. Friends, if you have embraced Christ as king, then the call for us is this. Do not go back to the old Herods. Do not go back to the old Herods. And I'm not just talking about physical Herods, I'm talking about spiritual Herods, which are the, the sins and the temptations and the things of life that want to bring us back into oppressive darkness. Old Herods are those things that want to kill the joy of Christ that is in our heart. Don't go back to Herod. Follow the Magi on a new road, one that is illuminated by the encounter with Christ who is King of the Jews. And I think this is how we are to live into this new epiphany season and how we are to live into this, this new reality that's created for us by the epiphany of Christ, to follow and walk into the light, into the new way. So friends, as we close, let me ask you this. Where is your joy this morning? Do you have the joy of embracing Christ in your life? Or maybe has a, an old Herod come in and tried to steal that joy? and tried to, to kill the joy of Christ in your heart. Friends, this epiphany season, embrace Christ as king anew. Because in the words of 1 Peter, he reminds us that we have been called out from darkness into marvelous light. Don't go back to the old hairs. Don't go back to the old darkness. So friends, may the, the light of Christ be born anew in your hearts this morning and in this epiphany season. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.